And this morning, money, a part of stewardship. I received a lovely little note from a lady following last Sunday's message about making God our source and some of the practical suggestions that I, that I made in the message. One of them was, before you purchase things, ask yourself three questions. You remember that? Do I need this? Do I need this? And do I need this? And she wrote this lovely note. She said, Pastor Cole, it works. She said, I went to the grocery store and I asked, do I need this? Do I need this? She said, I cut my grocery bill in half. So I'm grateful that people are following through on the practical aspects. Then I said, you might ask a fourth question after that. Would God be glorified in this? She said, I did buy myself a pair of boots. She said, I did need them, and I thought God wanted me to have them so my feet wouldn't get cold. So that's good thinking. And I appreciate the fact you're listening. All life is stewardship. Let that get through now. All life is a stewardship. God is the owner. We are the stewards of everything. And if we remember the beginnings of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 28, God's Word clearly tells us that he put everything here at our disposal and caused that we might subdue it and bring it into use, that we might utilize what God had placed here to the utmost. Now, the problem with the ecology and all of that is a problem with misuse, mismanagement that we have not been basically good stewards of what God has placed here. The account of stewardship is clearly outlined here in Romans, where we read a few moments ago. Verse 12 says that each of us shall give account of himself to God. In verse 10 it says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever applied stewardship to these verses or not, but I would like for you to do that today. When God said, I've made everything for you to use, and I leave you here on this planet to subdue it and to utilize it, God is going to hold us accountable for all of that. This is not just dealing with spiritual matters when Paul writes, we're all going to give account of ourselves to God. I think it's like the parable that Jesus told in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke about a certain steward. In the first verse of this parable and of this chapter, it says there was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. Now that is quite emblematic of most people wasting his goods, his opportunities, wasting what God put here for our enjoyment and benefit. 
And then in verse 2, Jesus said, so he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? And then this line, give account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. In those two verses, I think you have what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 14. We are made stewards of everything God has placed here. He expects us to manage it well. In this case, in Luke, he was wasting that which had been given to him, and he was brought into account for his stewardship. I was looking at an old book I have in my library. It was printed way back in about 1917, 1919, somewhere in there. And in the front part of that little book, it had the Christian stewardship principles of the Presbyterian Church of that time. Remember now, way back at the beginning of this century. There were four things that were printed in that old book out of the Presbyterian Church principles of stewardship. Number one was this. God is the owner of all. Well, we have no problem with that, do we? Right on. God is the owner of all. Number two. Man is a steward and must account for all that he has. That's where we are today in our message. Man is a steward and must account for all that he has. It is a very spiritual matter. Number three, God's ownership and man's stewardship are to be acknowledged by devoting a definite proportion, the first fruits, unto the service of God. That's what David was talking about learning early in his Christian walk, and it is not uncommon that many of us need to learn that. The fourth thing in the Christian stewardship principles of the Presbyterian Church back then read like this. All the rest, what is spent and what is saved, is to be treated as no less a sacred trust. Well, those are four very good statements for any church at any time. I subscribe to each one of them. They are saying what I want to say during this month of emphasis. Stewardship is God's school for preparing men for partnership with himself. And it's far more than money, as that testimony pointed out, and as these statements out of the Presbyterian Church principles point out. Far more than money, including money, but far more than money. Stewardship is God's school for preparing men for partnership with himself. Now, two things I want to leave you in my message today. Number one, I titled The Consecration of Life. Money, a part of stewardship, is the title of the message. The first major point, The Consecration of Life. 
An army chaplain in the First World War wrote a very interesting thing when he came back to his home state of New York following service in the country of France. He was speaking to a group of men in New York, and he made this statement. Remember, he's a chaplain. I have made up my mind that hereafter I am going to live for Jesus Christ. He repeated that statement to that group of men several times in his message. Then somebody at the appropriate time asked him a question. What do you mean, they asked? Haven't you been a minister of the gospel? Haven't you been living for Christ before this? He responded, yes, I have been a preacher of the gospel, and I suppose I have been living for Christ in a way. But in France, I have seen a vision, and I have been ashamed. I have seen our boys make sacrifices and cheerfully suffer hardships, even to death, for their country, which would put to shame the half-hearted service most Christians give to their Savior. No, he said, I have not really lived for Jesus Christ, and I mean to do it hereafter. End of quote. In that testimony is what I think this entire theme is about today, that we need to move out of the rhetoric and into the doing or the living of a life of stewardship. It's easy to say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe in the Bible. And we might even agree that God has given us all things to enjoy. But then we come down to the bottom line, which is how are we using the privileges, the opportunities that come along with all of that? And what amount of sacrifice is there in our being stewards of everything God has given to us? Now, as I look around today, I see a new Christian emerging. I want to explain that because it comes in two categories. The first category is out of the world of men who have never before felt the challenge of following Jesus Christ. I have talked to some of them this week. Men who have not been a part of God's family. They have not been involved in the church of Jesus Christ. An interesting group of people, and I meet them everywhere I go. Doctors, lawyers, accountants, athletes. I just happened to pick up yesterday in a brief report the testimony of Reggie White, the great Philadelphia Eagle defensive football player. 
They gave him for the second year in a row the Defensive Player of the Year award. He's a hulk of a man. And he stood there after the announcer had shaken his hand and presented his award, looking in the camera. He said, I want to thank my wife for her support. And then he said, and most importantly, I want to thank Jesus who has done so much in my life. And that is not uncommon anymore. And I have a feeling that some of these fellows are getting these networks to agree that if they go on a program, they're going to let them say what they want to say because they don't cut it out anymore. They don't erase it anymore. And I think it's about time. Mechanics, office workers, people who are coming out of every strata of life, men who have been living on their wife's religion in some cases, but have never been in the ranks of the church themselves. They are crying out like the jailer, what must I do to be saved? The new Christian is emerging. I call them the sophisticated heathen of America. And I've even referred to people that way in their presence, and they, they laugh, they smile, they say, it's true, that's exactly what I was. I was a sophisticated heathen. I was living without God. I didn't care about God. But what is emerging is that this crew of people called by the Holy Spirit convicted by the Holy Spirit, drawn by the Holy Spirit, are becoming a mighty force for God in the world. They don't know all the jargon yet. They haven't learned all the terms yet. And I would almost wish they would never learn all the terms. Just be plain vanilla. But they're coming out of every strata and from every avenue. And they are saying almost in mass, what can I do to bless the kingdom of God? What can I do? One such man came to both services last Sunday morning here, sat through the first service, heard the message, came back in to sit through again, and afterward he went to Pastor Clyde Preston motivated by the Spirit of God and said to him, I want to help in that camp project up at Capitol Mountain that God is making available to us. I want to make available all of the drywall for the buildings up there at the camp. And I have large trucks that the machinery can be taken up there to work with. I want to just be used in this project and made himself available to God. That's what I'm talking about. A new breed coming out of the unchurched ranks to say, I want to be a steward of what God has put within our hand to use. I thank God for that. And they're all over the place. Dentists who are wanting to be used by God put all of the apparatus in the mouth and then say, are you ready to meet God? 
Have you thought of eternity lately? And they pull out that huge needle. Have you repented of your sin? Effective. Optometrists who have scripture verses to test the eyes. You heard about that? Instead of ZXPQ, all that doesn't make a bit of sense. They say, read this. For God so loved the world. Can you read first? He gave his only begotten. I can't read any further. Well, let me finish it for you, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what's happening, this new breed of Christians. It's exciting to see. The other group come out of the church world, where indifference was reigning. I call them the Laodicean lukewarm group. They weren't hot and they weren't cold. They just were sitting in a lukewarm position, really doing nothing with what God had put in their hand to use. But now I see them coming one by one, two by two, seeing the tragedy of a dying world, the peril of the United States of America observing the moral decline, observing the humanistic approach to education, we're now in this state, as you have read this week, evolution is no longer a theory, it is taught now as a science. But men who have been in lukewarm positions rising up, saying, I don't want to be in that condition any longer. And they are discovering that the new Christian is an absolute necessity in God's world to use what they are and what they have to the glory of God. And I submit to you today that nobody is really fulfilled until they come to that position until they resolve this matter of stewardship in their life. It's far more than money. It's time. It's energy. It's talent. It's ability. It's all of life. And this new Christian coming out of the church is finding a thrill and a joy in becoming a part of it. Bishop James Thoburn wrote, The great glaring denial of faith and duty which stands out before the world today so clearly that it cannot be concealed is the refusal of those who bear the name of Christ to execute the great commission which their master has given them. Christianity is thus made to testify against herself. A thousand Ingersolls in every country under the sun would not do so much to create disbelief of the truth among men as this spectacle of a church inheriting promises which she seems unable to believe and receiving commandments which she seems unwilling to execute. 
And unfortunately, that's where a lot of folk were. And maybe yet some are. But I am looking around and I am observing with great interest as a leader of men and watching them stand up to say, I don't want to sit in lukewarmness anymore. I want to get hot for God. I want to offer to God what is mine to offer him. And I do it with joy and I do it with gladness as the fire of God's Holy Spirit burns within their heart. And friend, there's plenty for everybody to do. Bernard Johnson sat in our services just a couple of weeks ago, missionary to Brazil. He is referred to affectionately down there as the Billy Graham of Brazil. Some of you do not know that his father, living in Seattle, Washington, many years ago, not a preacher, a layman, but who in prayer saw Brazil, got a burden for Brazil. The brethren of the church said, no, you can't go to Brazil. You're not a credentialed minister. You're not prepared to go as a missionary. He sold everything he had, put his family on a ship, and they went to Brazil. The story in brief simply is this, that the Assemblies of God of Brazil today, which is one of the largest evangelical bodies anywhere in the world, started because of Bernard's father, a layman who got up off the pew with a vision in his heart and a burden in his soul, listening to God, went against the hierarchy, and said, I'm going to be faithful to God. And I want to say, I see again, after 75 years, the fire burning, the embers getting hot, as men and women, young people in the pew say, there's got to be more than what I'm experiencing and they are finding it in the realm of stewardship, of offering to God what they have before Jesus comes back. You don't have to go to Brazil to do it. It may be right next door. It may be down the street. It may be down the hallway. The point is, be open for this new breed of Christian is emerging to touch our world. The ancient concept of stewardship has got to prevail today if we're going to get the job done and fulfill the great commission of our Lord. Open your Bible to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke for just a moment. Verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9. The section is titled, The Cost of Discipleship. You'll remember it as I refer to it. It happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. It's easy to say that, isn't it? People come forward saying, I'll follow him wherever he leads me. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I want you to notice something in this passage that can be overlooked. Jesus comes to these persons in the ordinary happenings and responsibilities of life, and he says to them, follow me. But they begin to make excuse. I must go and bury my father. I must go and say goodbye to those who are at my house. And how much more could be added to that passage? I must go take care of the shop. I must go and do this. I must go and do that. But Jesus comes to us, church, in any time in history when we are in the ordinary duties and responsibilities and he says to every one of us, follow me. And he does not promise us a rose garden he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He says, if you follow me, if you choose to do what I'm asking, don't expect for gold-strewn streets. Just expect that I will be there with you and that you will find more fulfillment than you could ever imagine if you simply out of the ordinary responsibilities of your life offer to me everything that you are and everything that you have. Many of you have read The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. What you may have forgotten is that Brother Lawrence was a monk of the 17th century. He joined the monastery and immediately was put in charge of the kitchen. It was in the kitchen that Brother Lawrence learned to commune with God, cleaning the pots and pans, buying cabbages, cooking soup. He communed with God in that ordinary responsibility as a monk in the monastery. He began to be annoyed by the frequent calls to prayer. He had to interrupt his time with God to go into the chapel and pray formally. He found that God was more real in the ordinary and everyday chores than he was when the bell rang to go to the chapel. I rehearsed that again in my own spirit this week and thought, God, that's what you're saying to us. There's no question about it. That's what you're saying to us. Cleaning the slop in the kitchen. Carrying out the garbage. You are saying, I'm with you. Commune with me. Listen to me. Let my power flow through your life. A mechanic with his head under the hood repairing the engine. A banker at the bank making loans and deals. 
a landscaper putting in a lawn, a hairstylist doing some of those strange things we see today. Jesus in Luke 9 was saying to his church, wherever you are, in your ordinary responsibility, I am saying to you, follow me, listen to me, obey me, offer yourself to me, let me work through you to touch your world. Brother Lawrence found the secret and he wrote the practice of the presence of God. I remember when I was in Bible school. I, I got a job in the kitchen, too, and it was the worst of all. We ate on these ugly trays, tin trays. And so they would bring those tin trays back to a window, and someone had to be behind the window over a hole that led to a garbage can, and you would take that tray and bounce it on this rubber ring so that the slop would go down into the... Well, that was my job. You should have seen me coming out of there every day. I mean, you'd have that stuff everywhere. No way could you keep it from getting on you. And You have a choice at that point. You can say like Jacob, I will not go unless you bless me. Or you can get angry and frustrated and say, God, I didn't answer your call to the ministry to do this. I chose to be like Jacob. I will not let you go until you bless me. This is but another step in the whole span of things. I gave you my life. I said yes to your call. If this is necessary, I will stand here and handle slop. If that's what's required to get to know you. And as I look back from that slot place in the kitchen along the way, not always exciting, not always something you'd go searching for, responsibilities God gave that lead you into a life of communion and fellowship and to be able to say, God, whatever I am and whatever I have, I offer it all to you. I want to be a steward of everything you give. I see emerging a new vision and a new stewardship, the consecration of life and the consecration of material possessions. Second major point I want to bring to you in closing is the consecration of material possessions. No Christian stewardship that does not recognize God as the sovereign owner of the shop, the farm, the business, the family, and the money in the bank. It all goes together. William Colgate, who became famous the world over as the head of the Colgate Company when he was 16, left home. A wise river captain prayed over him and said, William, whatever you do, be honest and give a tenth to God. William Colgate never forgot that. He got a job. He adopted it as, as his motto, Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. 
So he gave a dime of his first dollar and a dollar of the first ten and continued that. Became a partner in a company and finally the sole owner. As those who were working with him grew older and wanted to get out of the business, he read in the Bible where God asked the Jews to give one-tenth, and he said, if the Lord will take one-tenth, I will give it. I like that approach. If the Lord will take one-tenth, then I will give it. Having regular employment, he continued to increase. And as the company improved and increased, he instructed his bookkeeper to open an account with the Lord. Actually, in the books, there was a page, the Lord's. And he watched that with great interest. The business grew. His family was blessed. His soap sold. So he gave the Lord two tenths. He gave the Lord three tenths. He gave the Lord four tenths. And then he gave five tenths. He educated his family, settled all his plans for life. And thereafter, William Colgate gave all of his income to the Lord. Where did it start? started like David McHenry. And somebody said, why don't you do this and see what happens? And then do this and see what happens. And before long, you find yourself a partner with God, doing more than you ever dreamed possible in your life. Deuteronomy 8 is a passage I want to leave with you this morning, a few verses toward the end of that chapter that are so valuable for us in this hour as so many things in this world seeks for our attention and our money. From verse 11 down through verse number 18, God says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you, verse 15 says, who fed you, Verse 16 says, and then down to verse 18, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. That whole passage says one very important thing to us in the area of stewardship. Money's a part of it. Not all of it, but it is a part of it. And he says, beware, lest when you build houses and when you get riches, that you forget the Lord. No wonder Jesus said, it's nigh to impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because when that happens, they take their eyes off from the giver. They take their eyes off from the one who provided them the knowledge and the ability and the strength to get the wealth. And they hoard it to themselves, and that's the beginning of the end spiritual life. And so Jesus had to say it's nigh to impossible. Don't let it happen to you. There should be in all of us a desire to please the owner, 
not just in the use of my money, but in the use of my time, my abilities, my talents, my opportunities. I want you to think, congregation, with me this morning of what you have to invest for God. I trust you've already gotten through the argument about where the tithe belongs and whether the offerings are right or not. What beyond that can I invest for God? You remember God said to Moses, what do you have in your hand? And Moses said, a rod. And the Lord said, use it. And it became a powerful implement as the Red Sea parted and that became an instrument of power. David went out as a young teenager to fight Goliath, not with the armor of Saul, but with a slingshot and five pebbles. What do you have in your hand? Mary had a bottle of ointment, and it has inspired millions through the years. What do you have? Well, you say, I used to teach, but I got tired of it, or I used to do this, or I used... Why don't you get it out of the closet, dust it off, and say, Lord, it's a part of my stewardship. You have an automobile. Maybe you can use that. You have a spare room. Maybe you have tools, a needle, and a thread. What is that in thine hand is what God is saying to the church of the 20th century. What do you have to use? Nobody is excused. Everybody should be involved in some way because everybody has something in their hand. Going back to our text, the Bible says each of us shall give an account of himself to God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sought to show us that we cannot serve two masters. You're either going to give it all to God or you're going to hold back and try to serve two and it will never work. He ended that great sermon by saying, build your house on the rock. Do not build it on the sand shifting sands of time but build it on the rock. I suppose this was illustrated so graphically to me with a statement found in the press by a wealthy New Yorker who in his last moments of life lamented and it was picked up and printed. What good does all my money do me now. Indeed, what good would it do if we heap it upon ourselves and we forget that God is requiring of us stewardship of life, of everything, and I ask you if you wouldn't be a part of the emerging throng that is saying, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. Yes, I'll be what you want me to be. Money's just a part of that. God is asking for your life. And in the words he used with Moses, what is that? 
in thine hands. He wants you to put it to use. You'll be blessed in the doing, I guarantee you. Shall we pray? Father, in the name of Jesus, we bow before you on this Sunday morning to thank you for the gift of life. We never want to take it for granted. You have blessed us with life. We're here. We're breathing. We are a part of your wonderful day, and we thank you, God. You've entrusted to us another day. But God, we want to use it the way it should be used as stewards. And we remember that Luke 9 passage. It's like you're calling us to yourself and saying, what is this I hear about you? You have been slothful. I'll require at your hand that which has been given. Give an account of thy stewardship. Lord, there are men and women here who have for many years known that Jesus died for them and they've never taken the gift of salvation. May they do it today. May they come out of wherever they have been to follow Jesus. And then there are many, Lord, who have sat on the pew week after week and then they've gone out of the church and that's it and they've not really invested themselves in what God would like to use them in in this life and in this world. Touch them now, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. God, may every one of us who has heard this message today say in sincerity, God, I want to give my all to you, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Let it happen, Lord. Let a miracle take place at Capital Christian Center today. What is that in thine hand? Here it is, Lord. We offer it, whatever it be. In Jesus' name. While we're bowed in prayer, may I ask this morning, how many of you need to move to the cross of Jesus Christ where there is salvation and forgiveness? You want to come out of sin and into his marvelous salvation. That's the place to start your stewardship. Use your life for God's glory. I want you to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need Jesus and I'd like you to pray for me today. I've heard the gospel, but I've never really truly responded by giving him my life. I want to do it today. Would you raise your hand right now and hold it there for a moment until I see the hand, then you may put it back down. Do it right now in any section of this auditorium. Thank you back there. I see your hand toward the back. God bless you. Lift it up high, up in the balcony. God bless you, sir, up there. I see your hand. Thank you. Others right here in the middle, ma'am. God bless you. And over to my left, yes, way to the side wall. God bless you over there. Others, lift them up quickly. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? Will you give him your life? That's the place to start. Thank you up there in the balcony, ma'am. I see your hand there. Praise God. Any others? Yes, right here on the aisle, sir. God bless you there. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? Lift it up now. I, I look for it quickly. Before concluding this service, I want to minister to you in Jesus' name. Lift it up now. I give my life to Jesus. I want to do it now. I don't want to waste another day. Thank you over here. Thank you. 
God bless you. Anyone else? Quickly. I don't want to waste another hour, another moment. Thank you over here on my left. Thank you. God bless you, young lady. Praise the Lord. Before we lift our heads and stand for our final prayer, how many of you would say, Pastor, God is saying to me, what?